three. Our Father, we uh, come to you and we ask that we will be calmed in our souls. Restlessness is something that, as you know, Lord, we deal with distraction. So we pray that our souls will rest in you as we hear you speak your word to us. Pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will take your word and supernaturally drive it into our hearts to change us. And we pray all these things with thanks and in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we'll see in this passage that Paul is on trial. Paul is in court. He has already been in some form of court. Now he comes into, if you like, the court of the Gentiles. He is before the governor, Felix, and he is going to be tried. He's been tried, like when somebody goes to the court. If you've been to the court before, I've had the opportunity to sit in a court and watch what is happening. It's, it's, it's really not fun when you are in that box. Well, it seems to me it's not fun when you're in that box. But here Paul is on trial. The the person who is really on trial is Jesus himself, is the Lord Jesus. <laughs> we'll see that in a minute. It is the gospel that is being tried, even though here Paul appears to be the one they are looking at. And so charges are brought against Paul, and Paul has to make a defense of the charges that are being brought is that the accusers, those who are bringing this charge against him, they have hired a lawyer. He's called Tertullus. So Tertullus has been hired. I don't know where he came from. And he is very, very good. If you look at, if you read earlier, and you look at the way he brings his argument against Paul, it is so calculated to make a certain point. Basically, he's accusing Paul of disrupting the peace of Judea, the peace of the, of, the, of the country. He says this, chapter 24, verse 4 to 6, We found in this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up routes among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, that is Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple so we seize him. That, that's basically it. And then Paul makes his defense. So Tertullus has finished talking. And then Felix, the governor and judge, notes. He just notes for Paul to make his defense. And this is Paul's defense. In the middle of the, his defense, he says something that is very interesting. Chapter 24, verse 16. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So what he is saying is this. When it comes to the truth that God has revealed in his word, Paul will not try to twist anything, twist, twist anything of the truth, either before God or before any human being, because he's talking to some big people or whatever that may be. 
He will strive to keep consistency before God and man in all that he said and all that he did. By this, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's saying that this word that has been given me, which informs the way I live, whether I stand before God or before human beings, my conscience is clear. I declare it as I know it. And when you look at the way Paul tackles the accusation that Tertullus brings, he just demolishes it. You know, at one point, if you listen to the reading very carefully, when it was being read, he said, well, some, peop- some Jews from Asia um, have accused me of this. And then he pauses and says that they actually ought to be here to bring these accusations against me. That is a very clever um, Roman way of approaching the thing. Because in the Roman law, if you brought accusations against somebody, you've got to be there yourself and prove it. You don't actually pass it through someone. You've made an accusation, but you're not here to substantiate the accusation. You don't have a fact. And the whole thing is vague. Um, but then, in saying that, Paul agrees with one thing that he's been accused of. And that thing is in verse 21. He says this. Unless it was this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence, that is in chapter 23, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He said the whole accusation at the heart of it is one thing. They can say whatever they like. And Felix, most excellent Felix, you can see that there is really no truth in it. They can't really prove it. When I went into the temple, I was ceremonially clean. I didn't just walk in. And when I came to Jerusalem, I wasn't even arguing with anybody. I didn't cause any route. They know it. It's been 12 days since I came to Jerusalem. And you can verify yourself that 12 days, if I have really done anything wrong, I haven't. But there is one thing that they probably are not mentioning, which I said, which bothered them. And that concerns the resurrection of the dead. Now, what is the big deal about Paul talking about the resurrection of the dead? Because the Pharisees also believe in the resurrection of the dead. It is the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. You remember in chapter 23 when he realizes that some are Pharisees, those who are accusing, some are Sadducees, and then he talked about the resurrection. And then the Sadducees and Pharisees began to argue among themselves. So, if the Pharisees really believe in the resurrection at the end of history, their belief is that, by the way, the Muslims have a kind of a belief. you see the difference in a minute. The Pharisees believe that at the end of history, God will raise both the wicked and the just. He will raise them back to life, and then he will judge them according to what they have done and determine their eternal destiny. So what is the problem that you have, they have with the apostolic and the early church preaching and Paul's preaching about the resurrection? The reason is this. The church, the believers had witnessed, you know, the Pharisees says at the end of history, God will return and judge. But here is the case, they have witnessed in the middle of history, as it were, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are saying that the resurrection has happened in Jesus. He was raised from the dead. There is an empty tomb to prove it. 
Now, you know that Christianity, everything that we say, is actually rooted in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And people have said, oh, you can, you can disprove the resurrection. Try it. People have done it since Jesus' day. And it's, now there is so much evidence that it is not to disprove the resurrection. It is really to find a way to not give it the meaning that has been given to it. People are trying to argue it in some other way. The apostles are saying that the resurrection has happened. The Lord is alive. They have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of history. This is not waiting for the world to come to an end. It has taken place here. The reason Jesus is, his resurrection is a proof. It's a proof that he's Lord and judge overall. And all will give an account, account to him. Jesus Christ will judge the world for all that they have been and for all that they have done. So the problem they had was not just to say that at the end of time there will be a resurrection. That you are attributing that this Nazarene, this Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. Now, let me pause for a minute and then we will seek to apply it in just a moment. You remember Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 where Daniel says that multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so what they're saying, what they believe is that everyone who has ever lived and anyone who will ever live, you are on a journey to stand before the creator, redeemer, judge and to render an account for how you have lived on earth, for how you have, you have utilized the humanity in the world that he gave you. But again, remember the difference. The apostles, on witnessing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they proclaim that this Jesus, for him, he's not going to render any account to anyone. He lived, lived a perfect life. His resurrection is a proof of his lordship, and it is a proof of his position as the ultimate judge. So listen to Peter. Peter had already talked about it. He says, chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, and then verse 36. After Peter had preached that long sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let it be, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified by his resurrection, both Lord and Christ, both Lord and King. So for Jesus, his resurrection proves it is not that which made him. It proves that he is truly the Lord of the world and he is the judge of the world and he is the savior of the world. Everything that he said about himself, everything that the Old Testament says about him is true. How did he prove it? He has been raised from the dead. He is Lord. 
And so Paul, before even this trial in chapter 17, 31, for he has set a day when he was preaching to the Gentile. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is a big deal. It is not some, it is not the Christian's way of, you know, uh, even though we don't know what will happen after that, we are just trying to appease ourselves, make ourselves feel good as we face the unknown. That is not it. Before we can talk about our resurrection, we talk about Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection is an indication. It has implications for every human being. He is Lord, Savior, and Judge. The proof is his resurrection. He has always been. But the proof to us is his resurrection. He lived among humanity, but he lived a perfect life. He qualifies to judge. He qualifies to save. He qualifies to be Lord. Jesus Christ died the sinner's death. But his death was to bear the judgment. Bear the judgment. He was standing in the box in the law court before God. He bore the judgment of the holy wrath, the holy anger of God. Not like human anger on sinners. Now Jesus is raised from the dead. And then he's raised from the dead to show us the way. He has lived all the life. You know, sometimes when you're talking to somebody who has accomplished something and is older, what do they say? He has seen it all. <laughs> he has seen it all. He's older. He's got the money. He's done all kinds of things. He's probably traveled, whatever. So we say that, oh, this man, you've got to listen to me. He has seen it all. The truth is that he hasn't seen it all. Jesus has seen it all. He lived the full life, perfect life. He died, faced God's judgment on behalf of sinners who will turn. And now he has been raised as the one who can truly show us the way to be saved from the coming judgment of condemnation. That is Jesus. So for now, people may dismiss this, clench their finger, raise all kinds of arguments, but it doesn't change the fact that at the end of time, we will face him in judgment. We will face God in judgment. And that is a sobering thing. Think about this life. Think about how we are living. Think about how we're going about parenting. Think about how we're going about marriage. Think about how we're going about our work. Think about how we're going about our schooling. Think about how we're going about church. Everything. None of them will escape the judgment of the risen Lord Jesus. It's a scary thought, isn't it? It is a sobering thought. He will bring all to book. He will judge on the last day. And you know what? The thing about judgment day is that judgment day is consistent with the holy character of God. If God is truly holy, if God cares about this world as his word says he does, then he wouldn't allow people, rebels, to just go about on rampage, doing whatever they like and turn his eyes unconcerned. Even in this life, occasionally we see glimpses of his judgment. On that day, he will right every wrong. Nothing, nothing, with all the years that the universe has been in existence, nothing will escape his judgment. Everything, every wrong will be righted. 
by this Lord. And the question is, which human being can stand before his holy throne? Which human being can stand before his holy throne, look him in the face, and say to him, I even I have been innocent all my life. I qualify for eternal life because I have earned it by my self-righteousness and good deeds. Which human being? Now, the question is not a question of, oh, uh, when people are saved, should they go on and do whatever thing? We hide behind that. Let's forget about that for a moment. Which human being sitting in front of me, including the speaker, which human being listening online can declare in these terms, by myself righteousness i have tried hard enough and earned my way and therefore i qualify for eternal life the answer is no one no one no one there is only one human being who ever lived perfect life the lord jesus who died and was raised from the dead so who no not even one that is bad news. But there is good news. There is good news. We'll see Paul's argument in a moment. God has provided the way of salvation from the coming judgment of condemnation. He has provided a way. Now, in Paul's defense here, so again, he's before Felix the judge. And then he says that there is no way of escape from the judgment of condemnation unless you find the way. <laughs> Please listen very carefully. Unless you find the way, there is no way of escape. So verse 14 and verse 22. Let's look at it. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything in accordance with the law as written in the prophets. And then verse 22, Felix, the governor, the judge, for some reason he also, he is very acquainted with what is happening with Christianity at this time. So verse 22 said, Then Felix, who was, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. The idea of the way. Where, where is that coming from? Why are the early Christians referred to as the people of the way? It comes from the Lord Jesus himself. When he makes a declaration in John. He says, John 14, 6. You remember? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So forget about the truth and the life for a moment. He says that he is the way. And there is no way there will be a reconciliation between any human being and God the Father unless you come to Jesus, through Jesus, and in Jesus. So you see why they are being referred to as the people of the way. I'm a follower of the way. For anyone to escape God's judgment, that leads to hell. And hell is real, by the way. This whole business <laughs> is to delight in God and not be part of those who go there. For anyone to escape the coming judgment that leads to hell, 
Jesus Christ is the only way. Capital W, capital A, capital Y. The only way of escape. When you find yourself in the way, another way of putting it is when you find yourself by faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, he will give you a confident assurance to look forward to the day of judgment. Paul puts it this way, verse 14 to 16. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of this way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So finding yourself in the way, the Lord Jesus by faith in him will do a number of things to you. Number one, if you listen to what Paul said, that I, I worship the true God. I worship the God of our ancestors, that is the God of the Old Testament. When you find yourself in the way, first, he by his power will turn your heart to worshiping the only true God. He will give you the grace to deal with the idols of your hearts. The little gods that we have put our confidence in for our self-worth and salvation, little salvations, and so on and so forth. And all the idols of self-righteousness and trusting in my own and trusting in the arm of flesh and all these other things. He turns your heart from that. You worship the only true God. Now, people will go to hell, not necessarily because they are bad people. They're really some very decent people. People will go to hell because they refuse to submit to the only true God as the only true God through the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him as Lord and to worship him alone. Not just those who worship stone idols, but as to who create in ourselves, within ourselves secretly, a religion of self-salvation. He says that, I'm a, I'm a worshiper of this true God. That is what it does when you find yourself in the way. Secondly, you will grow in loving all that God says about himself in scripture. And you will grow in believing it. Now, I didn't say that you will believe it. You will grow in believing it. You will believe it and grow in believing it. So what is going to happen is that for those who find themselves in the way, because the way is in you and you are in the way, the Lord Jesus there will be this desire for his word, to know it and to obey it. There are times when you struggle to read the Bible. That will be part of your experience. There are times when you will falter and slip and fall. But ultimately, the direction of your life will be in the way that you want to know God. Something draws you to his word. And then thirdly, if you are in this way, if you are in the way, everything about you will change. Your affections will change. You will start to move in the direction. Christianity is being in the way and moving in the direction of the way. And sometimes we fall, sometimes we look back, sometimes we are tempted. But whatever happens, there is this desire in us that changes. Our inmost being and the deepest affection begins to change. And that is why we repent. We turn consistently from our own idols. So my friend, this is all that I'm saying. Jesus Christ 
has been raised from the dead. He is Lord, Savior, and Judge. That is a proof, his resurrection. One day, we will all stand before his judgment seat and give an account. Whether we are in the way or we are not in the way. Whether we are in him or we are not in him. And if we are in him, certain pieces of evidence will begin to show. And I've just outlined just a few. So what are you doing about it? What are you doing about the fact that the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, is our judge? He will judge. So, let's finish up. Now, Felix does something which is very interesting. The governor, who is the judge. Now, the seat is going to turn. <laughs> Paul is going to tell him that you are the judge, right? The ultimate judge is going to sit in the seat and then judge the judge. The judge of the earth. So, look at what happens. Verse 24 to 27. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Now, you know Drusilla is Herod. Herod of chapter 12. His daughter, they hate Christians. They hate Christians with every fiber of their being. And Felix has money. He's, a, he's such a wicked guy. He's managed to seduce Drusilla away from her husband and married her. <laughs> Not too long before this incident. So several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is speaking to him about what? Faith. In Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, um, self-control, and judgment to come, faith in Jesus Christ has implications for what? For righteousness, for self-control, and the judgment to come. <laughs> Felix was afraid. The judge was afraid and said, you know when big people are afraid, or fathers are afraid, <laughs> you act tough, right? You have to act tough. You don't have to look weak and show that you are afraid. This morning I was climbing, I was going into a room and one of the kids went to hide to do hey, so that I'd be scared. When he did that, I was scared small, but I thought, hey. <laughs> because when I jumped, the whole house would turn upside down. <laughs> I got him. But it was scary. I don't know what was there. And so Felix says to Paul, that's enough. You may leave. When I, have it when I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that this Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. He wasn't really interested in what he was saying. He was hoping that he would offer him a bribe. When two years had passed, Felix succeeded, was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he wanted a favor from them, he would grant a favor. He left Paul in prison. He knew that this guy had done nothing wrong. Now, Felix is a typical human being. He expresses the typical human heart. Number one, he is corrupt at heart. He is really, really corrupt. In this case, he shows it by his love for bribe rather than for the truth. So he is corrupt. And then he had also, as I said earlier, seduced somebody's wife to become his wife, Drusilla. And then he loves human approval. He loves human approval. That is so sinful. That's a big part of our sin. Loves human approval. And to get human approval, he goes into a butter system. Butter system is you give something to receive something. And so he leaves Paul in prison in order that um, he shows favor to the Jews. And they will speak well of him. 
because they had already spoken well of him when Tertullus stood forward. If you read it earlier, hey, the flattery on Felix. Oh, Felix. There is no human being like you that has ever existed. You have given us peace. That is not entirely true. Anyway, so Felix wanted it. Felix reveals the human hearts. The reason human beings will, will not be able to stand in judgment before God and find ourselves in hell because our hearts loves the things of the world, loves these things, the human approval, and we fail to turn to Jesus and seek God's approval. That is at the heart of it. That is the root of our sin. When Jesus comes to judge. So he hears the message of the gospel of grace and then he turns away. He turns away because if he believes this gospel of grace, if he puts his faith in Jesus, it will have implications for his relationship with Drusilla. It will have implications for this desire for bribe. It will have implications for his thirst for this Jewish approval. He looks at it and he was afraid. I am not prepared to lose all these things. I would rather embrace God's judgment because he doesn't know it rather than submit now and have Jesus take care of the judgment on the cross for me. And so he leaves. I want to appeal to anyone who is listening to me before I finish, whether online or here, regular attendant of church. I plead with you that please don't close your heart to Jesus. Don't close your heart to him as Savior, as Judge, and as Lord. He is the only one who can rescue you. You can't stand before him when it comes to his judgment of condemnation. He wants to judge you to justify you in him. He's the only one who can do that. And so he calls you to surrender everything to him. Your whole life, everything about your life, everything, everything about your life, so that he will be your savior, your Lord, and your judge, the Lord Jesus. What will happen to you if you turn to the Lord Jesus? It's just a repetition, but please permit me to repeat it. Do you want to test that you're a Christian? It's a matter of your heart, and that shows itself in your behavior. But here is the thing. At the heart of the matter, your heart will long. There will be this longing to worship God alone, to submit to him alone, to love him above all things, to have him as your treasure. That is actually the mark of the Christian. That's what the Holy Spirit does in a person. You will be growing in spite of sometimes for a whole week, you have battled with having your quiet time and your devotion. That is understandable. It's part of the struggle of the Christian life. But deep within you, there will be the crying out to Jesus for help rather than walking away from him. The children of God, when they are in trouble, They'll be crying, they'll be naughty, they'll be all that, but they still cry out and move towards their father. That is a mark of a Christian. You will not be the same anymore. Now, let me close off. You remember the passage we read, chapter 23 and verse 11, right? Chapter 23 and verse 11. The point of chapter 23, verse 11, there are many points, but this one point is that 
if you believe, if you know whether or not you believe it, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that each of us, when we die, Jesus tarries, and when we die, we will be raised back to life. Do you know any loved one who has died? I know one person who I'm looking forward to seeing, two people. Reverend Dr. T.B. Dankwa and my favorite auntie, Audrey Osemensa. They'll be raised back to life. And if at that time I've also died, I'll be raised back to life. And then before us will be the judgment seat. I don't know where it will position of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, Redeemer. If you put your trust in him and you turn and this gospel begins to change you, you will be raised to a judgment that frees you. That frees you to enjoy him. We call it a judgment of justification. A judgment that you've been put right with God. A judgment that will glorify you. If you have kicked against Jesus, you would have to face the full judgment of the holy wrath of God that no human being is able to face. And so the whole point of ministry, what we're doing, is to plead with people, turn to the way, turn to Jesus, find yourself in the way, move your life in the direction towards him. He will give you that grace. You cannot face God's judgment of condemnation. You can't. You cannot. Run now to the Lord Jesus. And that will change everything. Let's pray. Our Father, it is, it is always a sobering thing to talk about the resurrection and the coming judgment. But it's also very exciting. Fearful and exciting at the same time. Because for us, we fear any thought of the judgment to come because we know in and of ourselves we have been pronounced guilty already. Yet we rejoice. We rejoice with an unspeakable joy because we know in him and by his work in us the judgment of condemnation has been born already on the cross. And so we can approach the throne of grace. We can approach the judge who is our friend, who is our God, who is our king, who is our Lord. And so please help us to, to, to stay in the way, in Jesus, to look to him, to embrace him, to treasure him, to seek by your grace, to walk in the direction that obeys this great gospel. We can't do it in ourselves unless you help us, help us, help us, forgive us the sin of occasionally turning and trusting in ourselves and thinking of the judgment day and looking to ourselves rather than looking to Jesus. Please, Lord, help us and let this hope of the resurrection and the coming judgment be evident in our lives as we are moved by your Holy Spirit to worship this God alone and to forsake our idols and to turn from them 
and to embrace the scriptures and everything that you have said concerning Jesus to believe it help us to believe it and to move towards him in repentance and faith every day in repentance and faith every day we turn from our selfishness and self-centeredness and inward lookingness and self-worship and self-righteousness and we turn to Jesus that we might be changed by him to look more like him on the judgment day we will look like him and therefore in him justified and sanctified and glorified in his name we pray